may that always be our cry, right, from start to, start to finish. We need the Lord today as much as we ever have or ever will. So thank you, uh, Billy and Andrew, for leading us. And Christ is enough, isn't he? He's all we have, but that's okay. We, we don't lack. We don't lack anything. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to finish out chapter 10 this, this week. Uh, and then I'm actually, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm, most, I, I'm normally always excited um, to preach, but, but next week we are going to cover, Lord willing, all of chapter 11. And so it's the Hall of Faith. You've probably heard it. You're probably f- somewhat familiar, but, but maybe this week, um, maybe take some time and read all of it, because, because at least for me, having, having been through Hebrews as, as now I'm coming to it, you have a different perspective, because we've been with this author throughout the entire book. And so when you read chapter 11 now, in the context that we've, we're immersed in kind of his argument, and, and so I'm, I'm excited to, to look at uh, chapter 11 next week. But, but that's not for this week. This week we're going to be in, in Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 39, which we'll read uh, in, in just a minute. But, but as we come to this passage, this is the fourth warning passage here in Hebrews. And so the title of the sermon is, Don't Abandon Christ. Don't Abandon Christ. And it's the fourth warning. And so what, what he's going to do, as we'll see, is there's a warning, then there's an encouragement. But, but I want to focus on the warning because I think that's his main point. And as we come to this warning, that the benefit of, of going through books of the Bible from, from start to finish, as we've been with this author and, and kind of trying to understand that the context that he's writing into and the, the situation of his recipients, we understand that the purpose for his writing is he wants his readers to persevere. That, that's been clear throughout this, this entire book. He wants them to hold fast because Jesus is better. He wants them to hold fast. And so if we were to just drop into this passage without understanding his heart and his purpose in writing, this this passage could seem shocking or harsh. But because we've been with them, I I don't, at least I hope they don't come across as shocking or harsh. Because we know that that his, his vision for them, his heart for these people is that they persevere. And so in order to show his readers and us that, that Jesus is our only hope, he, he's highlighted over and over again that, that Christ is better and this covenant is better. And so your relationship with God, peace with God, your clean conscience before God, your forgiveness of sins has come to you through Jesus alone. So you better hold on to him because if you let go of him, you don't have any of those things. And so possessing that hope, trusting in Christ requires, or we might say includes persevering in that faith and that hope. To hope in Christ requires holding fast to Christ. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a main point that he's made, which would mean, alternatively, to fall away from Christ, to abandon Christ, to forsake him, is to lose everything and to forfeit your hope. And so to have Christ is to hold fast to Christ. I mean, that, that the two go hand in hand. To have Christ is to hold fast to him. And so in, in his attempt to encourage and promote holding fast to Christ in order to pr- provoke his readers to perseverance, the author of Hebrews has been utilizing warnings, and, and he's going to use a warning here today. And just to remind you, I, I think to rightly understand these warnings in Hebrews, we understand that every warning is a real warning that is addressed to Christians, and that these warnings present real consequences for failing to heed them. That, that's how I think it's the best to understand. That's how I think we ought to understand the warnings. They are real warnings to real people with real, high, with real consequences. And they're given in order to stress the importance of holding fast to Christ and to warn the readers the danger of forsaking Christ. 
And what I've tried to make perfectly clear throughout our study, and especially through the warning passages, is that if you forsake Christ, if you turn away from him, if you refuse to trust in him, if you refuse to look to him with faith and hold fast to him, if you do that, if you refuse to, or if you do any of those things, you have no reason for confidence or assurance of your salvation. And that's, that shouldn't be controversial. It doesn't deny the assurance of salvation or the confidence that someone can have in their salvation. It simply affirms that salvation is dependent upon faith in Jesus. And it's a faith that perseveres. So to have Christ is to hold fast to Christ. You, you can't have him if you don't hold fast to him. And that's what we've seen in trying to understand these warnings throughout the book of Hebrews is that these warnings serve as a means of perseverance. In other words, the warnings prevent Christians from falling away. So that a Christian, when, when you hear these warnings, you don't respond initially by saying, well, I don't need to heed that warning because I'm, I'm eternally secure. I'm safe. I don't have to worry about the warning. No, the Christian hears the warnings and says, I want to I stay safe. I don't want to do what I'm being warned against. I, God, help me. Keep me. Thus, you heed the warning. The warning serves its purpose because it promotes in you a, 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 a desire to heed the warning. And, and so a quote that I shared uh, several months ago is from Charles Spurgeon. But listen how he explains. This is such a powerful illustration of how the warnings function. He says, God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. For example, this is an illustration Spurgeon says, there's a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? So a deep precipice, like a, a, a cliff, and there's just a, a deep valley. If you're not familiar with the term precipice, maybe, maybe you don't use that enough or, or anymore. But, but how do you keep someone from, from staying off the edge and, and from falling in? Why to tell them, if you, if you go over that edge, you're going to be dashed to pieces. That's a warning. So, Spurgeon continues, God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, if you do this thing that you're being warned against, you will be dashed to pieces. And what does the child, when, when he hears God saying that, do? He says, Father, keep me, hold me up, and I shall be safe. It leads the, the believer to a greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands far away from that great gulf, because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. And so the warning keeps him away from the cliff. And so the warning is the means of keeping Christians from falling away. So the warnings are means of perseverance, just like a parent's scream that alerts the child of, of danger at hand and, and leads the child away from danger. I mean, that, that same, that's a warning that, that prevents them from entering danger or from getting seriously injured. And so the, the, the warning, we'll see this warning, functions as a means of keeping Christians. And so we're going to pick up in verse 26, but, but, but verse 26 follows the line of thought from 25. And so last week we finished with verse 25. In the end of verse 25, we didn't comment much on it, but last week, if you look at the end of verse 25, there's a focus on, on judgment that's coming. And that's what leads him to the warning in verse 26. It's the idea of judgment that connects last week's passage to this. So if you just look right up in, in verses 22 through 25, what we looked at last week, where the author exhorts the readers to draw near to hold fast and to encourage one another... And he says, do the, all of these things, especially the gathering together, as you see the day approaching. And so, so a source of encouragement to, to preserve Christians from falling away is gathering together. And he says, you, you better do this as the day approaches. In other words, verse 25 ends with, don't neglect meeting together, 
all the more as you see the day approaching, this, this day of judgment. And his point is that meeting together is what helps Christians persevere, and perseverance is necessary because judgment is coming. That, that's how verse 25 ended. And then it transitions us into verse 26. It's the reality of coming judgment that is central to our passage today. So you can follow on Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 26 and read through the end of the chapter. So you can follow along as I read. For, verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But there remains a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding possession. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray as we, as we look through these verses. Lord, I pray that your word would accomplish its purposes here in this room Lord, this is your word, and it is sharp and powerful and able to accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish. And so I pray that, that whether we need to be warned or encouraged or maybe a mixture of both, I pray that this word would, would fall upon your people and those who are not your people or those who are now your people and contemplating falling away and not being part of your people. I pray that this word would do far more than I could ever think or imagine to ask you to do through it. And so I pray you do, do your work, accomplish your will here among us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, the outline is really simple. So, so we've got two points. We've got the warning in verses 26 through 31. Then we've got the encouragement. Okay, warning and encouragement. Now this is a point of, a point of application. I thought about putting it, but, but we could see that as Christians, we are sometimes in need of being warned of, of, of kind of harsh words, and sometimes we're in need of, of kind and encouraging words. And so wisdom as a Christian is knowing who needs what when, right? Sometimes we can misdiagnose and give a warning when the person just needs encouragement. So we need wisdom, but here the author is mixing warning and encouragement. So we're going to first look at the warning there in verses 26 through 31. 
And so the author turns from exhorting his readers to hold fast. He turns to highlight the dangers of falling away. And so in, under this warning, there, there are kind of three subpoints, okay? And, and we'll work through those. Okay, and so first subpoint under the warning is, is verses 26 and 27, which he makes the point, sin must be paid for. So, so look there at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, when you read that, you think, well, what in the world? Not true, right? That, 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 that might be our impulse. So, so what, what, what's he saying here? Well, the f- most important thing I would say is understanding the phrase and, and the specific wording of this warning. If we go on sinning deliberately, right? This is the most important phrase to understand. What does he mean by sinning deliberately? Because if we don't understand what is being said, what he's describing there, a failure to understand what he means by sinning deliberately means that we don't understand his purpose behind the warning. And so when the author warns against sinning deliberately, he has in mind a very particular thing. He has in mind something that is intentional, something that is deliberate. The author has in mind the idea of a willing participation in action, something done with a clear mind and a firm step. What the author has in mind is a deliberate, sinful lifestyle of high-handed rebellion against the gospel. So, so it's sinning deliberately is, a, is an abandonment of Christ. It doesn't happen accidentally. So, so, so if you're here and you're like, oh my goodness, have I, am I sinning deliberately? Right? You're not. The fact that you respond that way shows that you're not. Sinning deliberately is something that you do where you intentionally apostatize. You, you say, I'm done with this whole Jesus thing. And we'll see. That's his point. The warning is that if you go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And so here's the logic. After becoming a Christian, right? I mean, I think that's his point there, right? After receiving the knowledge of truth, it's not just hearing it, it's receiving the knowledge of truth. If after that, after becoming a Christian, if you go on sinning deliberately, which is this intentional turning away from Christ, if we forsake Christ after once turning to Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That's the warning. And to understand, just think about what must happen for someone to receive the knowledge of truth in the first place. What happens, what transpires when someone turns to Christ at the, at the, at the beginning, at the outset of the Christian pilgrimage? When someone turns to Christ, he or she acknowledges that Christ is the divine son sent from the Father to lay down his life and die as a perfect sacrifice in our place. Right? That's what it means to, to receive the truth. It's to recognize that Christ is the only hope for a lost sinner to be saved. And so to receive the knowledge of the truth means that the individual recognizes and affirms that Jesus came, that he was crucified, buried, and raised again in order to establish a new covenant, a better way of sinful people relating to God. Right? That's, that's what it means to become a Christian to receive the truth, to turn to Christ requires a recognition that the way has been opened and that Christ has secured forgiveness and peace for those who come to God through him. And so when you turn to him, you turn to him believing those things, believing that outside of Christ there's no salvation, believing that outside of his sacrifice on your behalf there is no forgiveness. And so it makes sense, at least in my mind, for the author of Hebrews to say that if you've received, if you've accepted the truth and then you deliberately turn away, if, if, if you once professed Christ as the only hope for your salvation and then you intentionally abandoned Christ, what sense would it make to say that this person is still safe and secure in Christ? That's the whole point of abandoning him. 
The point is that to be safe and secure in Christ is to be holding fast to Christ. Of course, there remains no sacrifice for sins for anyone who would seek it outside of Christ. So, so there's always room. There's always room for repentance, but there's only one cross. And, and so if you, if you fall away, you can always get back, but you only get back through Christ, through the cross. There's one cross. And that's his point. Outside of that, there's no sacrifice for sins. To say that one who abandons Christ intentionally turns away from Christ can still have the forgiveness of sins goes against the entire point of this letter to the Hebrews. If there was no real danger in his audience forsaking Christ, he wouldn't have written the letter. If perseverance, if if holding fast to Christ were not necessary, the author wouldn't be wasting his time with these severe warnings because he wouldn't care if they sinned deliberately and abandoned Christ. If there is hope for them, but he does care because holding fast to Christ is necessary. One, one author can, explains it this way. If, through the gospel, people have received the knowledge of the truth and then turned their backs on it, no sacrifice for sins is left. It cannot be otherwise. Christ, by his single perfect sacrifice, has provided complete cleansing for sins and put an end to other sacrifices. But if this way of forgiveness and acceptance with God through the death of his son has been wholly repudiated, all hope of salvation is lost. There's no, no other sacrifice for sin. One can't receive forgiveness through the once-for-all offering of Jesus if one defiantly rejects him. I mean, that's the logic there. How, how are you going to get something from one that you're saying, I don't want it? Forgiveness only belongs to those who continue to trust in Jesus for forgiveness, which, which means that those who aren't holding fast to Christ, those who deliberately abandon Christ and reject the faith, must not expect, should not expect, the forgiveness of sins. It's like salvation in Christ is a one-way street, and the one who sins deliberately, the one who abandons Christ, puts up a roadblock and just says, I'm not going down that road. I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to go where it takes me. Why in the world would that person expect to find forgiveness of sins or salvation? They know the way, and they've said, I know the way. I know what it means. I'm not, I'm not taking that road. If they refuse to go down it, what, what hope is there for that person? That person would not have any sacrifice for sin because sacrifice for sins is contingent on finding them in Christ alone. And so the person, I mean, if we go on sinning deliberately, remember, if we, if we refuse to identify with Christ, if we in, intentionally abandon him and forsake him after being saved, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. You're not talking about the, the potential and, and losing your salvation. You're just, salvation He's just saying, if, if you forsake Christ, you have no forgiveness of sins because it only comes through Jesus. And, and, and so I will say this at the end, but, but the, the solution isn't introspection. The, the, the solution is, is Christ's view. Look at Jesus. Hold fast to him. And as long as you're doing that, you're safe. And so instead of forgiveness of sins, verse 27, the person, what remains for the person who forsakes Christ is, verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You come to God through Christ or you don't come to God at all. Right? This shouldn't be controversial. God has made a way for peace. God has sent his son. Christ has offered himself as a spotless lamb, crucified and resurrected to secure your salvation in mind, to accomplish the redemption of men and women, boys and girls who don't deserve it. Right? Jesus died for sinners like us. And we get in on the good deal just because Jesus died and rose again. And, and all we do is look to him and believe. Right? So it's good news for you and for me. Amen. But it's good news only for those who hear and believe. Apart from Christ and the gospel, there isn't hope. And so this verse simply lays out that reality. If you aren't trusting in Christ, if you're not holding fast to Christ, 
then you aren't reconciled to God. You don't have peace with him. Instead, you're at enmity with him. There's hostility between you and your creator. And for those who refuse Christ, especially those who refuse him after receiving the truth, of course there's no peace with God, but only judgment and a fury of fire that will consume. That's what's at stake when it comes to holding fast to Christ versus abandoning Christ. And so don't abandon Christ. That's the warning. Don't do it. The day is coming when the adversaries of God, when his enemies will face him, and on that day, their sin will be punished. Sacrifice will be made, and it's either a payment that, will, that they will make for all of eternity, or it's a payment that Christ has paid on the cross. And what determines who pays is whether or not you're holding fast to Christ. Hence the warning, don't abandon Christ. And just to add here, while, while abandoning Christ isn't something that happens accidentally, so it's intentional, It should also be noted that abandoning Christ is not something that you would wake up one day and say, I'm going to do it today. Maybe, sometimes that's the case, but more often than not, it's a process, a slow drift, where one day you're you're fervently holding fast to Christ, but but year after year after year goes by, and you wake up and you think, "I, I don't need that. And it's a drift, which is why last week was such a powerful passage, because he's saying that neglecting assembling together is the first step on this road to apostasy. I think that's why it's related here. That's why he says, don't do it, especially all the more as you see the day approaching. And so, so we must just beware of our direction, of our trajectory. It can start really small. But if we're not careful, like the snowball that starts really small, it all of a sudden gets really big and really dangerous to all in its way. And so the remedy to abandoning Christ at all stages, whether at the beginning or the middle or the end, is to hold fast to Christ. That's why there's always room for repentance. Well, the the author continues to make the point here in verses 28 and 29 by highlighting exactly what is at stake. And and to do this, he contrasts the covenant. So look there at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, right? So this is the old covenant, the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant, and by which he was, by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? And so here in these verses, this is a, a lesser to greater argument. He compares the old covenant under Moses, the, the lesser covenant, which has been made clear throughout Hebrews thus far, he compares this, this lef, lesser covenantal punishment with the new covenant, the greater covenant, the better covenant under Christ. And to make his point, he shows how abandoning or forsaking the law of Moses under the old covenant, if you abandoned God and went after another God, there was punishment under the law of Moses. Now, he doesn't mention it, but, but his readers would have known that the punishment here in, in, in Deuteronomy 17 that, that he's referencing, it's not just any punishment, it is death. If there's any among the camp who, who abandon Yahweh and go after other gods, they must be stoned to death. And you can look at, at Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. Right? So it's the death penalty. That's the consequence for abandoning the covenant. And so he's reminding his readers, under this old, lesser covenant, anyone who went after other gods and abandoned the one true God, that person, under the old covenant, was punished by death. That was the cost of abandoning God. And if that was the punishment for abandonment under the old, the lesser, why would abandonment under the new, the greater covenant, have any less severe consequences? And the gravity of such willful repudiation of the law of Moses under the old covenant serves to highlight the much greater seriousness of apostasy under the new. 
So that's why he asked the, the, the hypothetical question or the rhetorical question in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think? So there's punishment in the old. How much worse do you think it's going to be under the new? And his, the, the clearly implied answer is it's going to be much worse. His point is that those who reject the new covenant sacrifice of the Son of God deserve a punishment even more severe than death. I mean, physical death, does it get much worse than that? Right? That, that's the cost of abandoning Christ under the new. It's a, it's a punishment worse than physical death. It is, it is permanent, spiritual, eternal death. And so notice how the actions of the person who sins deliberately, the actions of the person who abandons Christ, in, in verse 29, they're described with, with pretty graphic descriptions. Right? He wants them to get the, the cost. He wants them to understand, I can't do this lightly. So, so first he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has, first phrase, trampled the Son of God underfoot? Right? So, so the author says the Son of God, right? This is the shocking character of apostasy. It's not only you're, you're turning from, from the gospel, but you're mocking the Son who gave his very life for you, who shed his blood to, to redeem you. This, this abandonment isn't inconsequential, the sin that's being warned against is trampling underfoot the divine son. And it requires a repudiation of what was previously confessed as true and vital to one's own salvation. You once said, I believe Jesus. He's my only hope. But then you trample him underfoot if you abandon him. Again, he's, he's warning, don't do it. This is what it would mean to do it. And it's a means of, of, of bringing about Perseverance. So it's not only trampling the Son of God underfoot. Look at the next phrase. It's also profaning the blood of the covenant. And so he spent a lot of time on, on the blood of the new covenant. It's a repeated theme. And, and he's highlighted that one of the main differences between the old and the new is the, the blood of, of Jesus, the new covenant, right? This is next week. We'll have the Lord's Supper. And Jesus says, this is my blood shed for you. It's, it's blood of the new covenant. So his blood is a, a big part of, of what separates the, the new from the old. It's, it's better blood. It's his blood that, that secures eternal redemption. It's, it's his blood that cleanses completely your conscience. It's his blood that, that removes your sin. It's his blood that gives access into the very presence of God. It's, it's his blood that, that sanctifies his people. Did you notice that there in verse 29? That you're profaning the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified? The author still, he believes his, his, his readers are genuine Christians these aren't just these hypothetical people in, in this limbo state. He believes they're Christians. They've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. They've received the truth. They've been enlightened. And, and he's saying, for you to abandon Christ is to profane the blood of the covenant. To reject Jesus is to profane his blood. It's to deem the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant, as, as useless and cheap and dispensable. It's like the, the toddler who doesn't recognize the value of fine china and decides to relocate all the fine china from the cabinet to the floor. Right? That child fails to recognize the value of china and treats it like a toy, like something that's dispensable. So it is with the one who turns away from Christ and abandons him. You, you scorn the blood of the covenant. You profane it. You say, this is, this is not really that significant. It's just like the, 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 the blood that, that was spilled in the temple or worse. Finally, it's not only the son, that the Son is trampled underfoot, that the blood of the covenant is profaned, but thirdly, the Spirit of grace is outraged. Your translation may say that the Spirit is insulted. You've insulted the Spirit of grace. But in a similar vein, much like the blood of Christ, the Spirit also serves the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity also serves as a marker or a sign of the new covenant. 
So the person who turns to Christ is given the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who is promised under the Old Covenant as a, as a realization that the promise is fulfilled in the New, and the Holy Spirit dwells within the New Covenant people. Which means that to abandon Christ is not only to trample Him underfoot, not only to profane His blood, but it's also to outrage the Spirit of grace who has been given to every New Covenant believer. And so he uses all these, all these, all these descriptions in order to highlight the significance of abandoning Christ. The one who forsakes Christ takes very bold, eternally consequential actions. This abandonment is costly and will lead to greater punishment even than was experienced under the old covenant and the law of Moses, which is what we see there in verses 30 and 31. The reason for this greater punishment is directly connected to the very character of God. Look at verse 30. He's just made these warnings, and if you do this, this is what you're going to do. This This is what you're actually doing Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So there in verse 30, the author is drawn from two separate verses in Deuteronomy 32. So this is the song of Moses back at the end of his life in Deuteronomy. And both of the the quotes that he pulls from Deuteronomy 32 have to do with the, the nature of God's character. And in the song of Moses there in Deuteronomy 32, Moses at the end of his life, he, he's warning the Israelites and he's highlighting the judgment that rebellious Israel would face. They're not safe just because they're, they're his people. Right? If they rebel, if they forsake him, there is judgment. So Moses is warning the Israelites under the old covenant about the dangers of turning their backs on the covenant. And the danger, which, which is seen in these quotations, is the certainty of divine judgment. And, and Moses ties judgment with God himself. I will repay. God himself will ensure that those who forsake the covenant are punished. And the author of Hebrews, in knowing the context of Deuteronomy 32 and knowing what's at stake for his readers, wants to make very, a very clear case that to rebel against God, to forsake the covenant, to abandon Christ, is to be on the side of God's enemies. To be against God and to be in danger of his vengeance and judgment. That's what give this war- gives this warning its legitimacy. The judgment, the wrath of God. It's what helps us make sense of the high stakes for the Hebrews and for us. If there is no danger apart from Christ, then there's no reason for the warning. But there's great danger in abandoning Christ. There's great danger in forsaking God, which is why verse 31 ends with a well-known verse. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. As one who has abandoned him, who's rebelled against him. It is a fearful thing. Now, it's not fearful, right? We'll see this in chapter 12. We don't have to come with fear. We can come with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. So we can come to God through Jesus with, with confidence and boldness. But, but if we're trying to come to him apart from Christ, if we say, I want to I be okay with you, but I don't want it through Jesus, right? There's no reason to think that you're going to be received by him. He's made a way. And so just quickly, a point of application is that Christ is our only comfort. If you're here this morning, Christ is your only comfort. Whether you're a believer in him or whether you're not a believer in him, Christ is your only comfort. There's, there, there's historic catechism. So, so the church is, historically has had, has had these statements of faith that are, that are worked out in catechism questions. Right? That's how people used to learn. You'd ask a question, then the, the, the person would recite them back. And so one of the most well-known is the Heidelberg Catechism. And so the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your only hope in life and death? And then the person, the the answer that you would memorize is that I am not my own, but belong in body and soul to my Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is our only hope in life and in death. There's no hope outside of Jesus for you, for me, for this world. 
This is why we, we want to be a gospel-believing and a gospel-proclaiming church because there's people on page drive who don't know Jesus and have no hope. There's people on Fox Hill Road. There's people in Hampton, in Virginia. We have family members in other states who don't know Jesus, and we want them to know Jesus because that's where hope is found. And there's no hope apart from him. That, that's why we want to, to give money, financial money, and support to missionaries who, who, are, who are out sharing the gospel in places that we are not. This is why we want to lay down our lives. If you're a Christian, your purpose in life is to lay down your life for the good of those around you, whether your children, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. And we want people to know Jesus died for them and there's hope for them. We want to be friends with them. We want to be kind to them. We want them to know the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. That is our message. And so author of Hebrews is just saying Christ is your only hope. Whether you're turning to him for the first time at the beginning or whether you're holding fast to him for a long time until the end. Right? Christ is your hope. Hold fast to him. Well, then after the warning, that the author, his pastoral heart comes out because immediately following the warning, he turns to encourage them. So let's look briefly at the second point here, the encouragement, verses 32 through 39. And so the author, having just given this harsh warning, attempts to encourage his, his people, which tells us first that, that they haven't fallen away yet. They're not at the point where they've abandoned Christ. That's why he's warning them. He doesn't want them to go there, and God's going to use his warning to keep them from going there. So they haven't gone there yet. They're still Christians. And second, he seems pretty confident that they're going to heed his warnings because his, his tenderheartedness towards them shows his confidence in, the, in knowing the people he's writing to. And we'll see that in, at the end of this section. But so he's going to encourage them, and he basically tells them to do two things in, this, this past, in these, these verses. He draws their attention in, in kind of two directions. First, he says, look back, verses 32 through 34. Look back, he says, recall the former days. But then in verses 35 through 39, he says, look ahead. Consider what, what's ahead. Endurance is required. Right? The, think about what awaits. What, what's, the, what's the end goal? Right? So, so let's, let's first start verse 32 through 34 in the looking back. So there, verse 32. Clear the transition. But recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Remember, he says, the, the former days when, when you were young Christians. Right? That's what he means by when you were enlightened. This is you, you received the truth. You were saved. Remember when you were young Christians. And, he says, remember when you endured a hard struggle with suffering. So he calls them to, to remember a time in their lives when, when the pressure to abandon Christ a time where temptation to forsake Christ because of a little suffering wasn't appealing to them. They endured. He says, recall those days. Remember back then. Notice verse 33, the specifics involved. They endured a hard struggle with suffering. Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. So sometimes it was them themselves exposed to, to public reproach and affliction. And sometimes it was them being partners with those so treated. And so his audience, right, this was part of their story. They had suffered. They had persevered through difficulties in the early days, even to the point of public humiliation and shame. Maybe they'd even been imprisoned. And his whole point is that there was, it was their identification with Christ that was the source of their suffering. They, they held fast to Christ, and they didn't care what came their way. They were persevering. He says, recall former days. They didn't mind the suffering. 
They endured. And the whole point of the author of Hebrews is to remind them as if to say, you've done this before. Suffering, persecution, it's not new to you. Why are you giving up now? I mean, what a powerful thing memory is. I mean, maybe you've been at this church for decades. Do you remember when this place was alive with the Spirit of God? Or maybe it wasn't this church. Maybe you grew up at a church and, and it was filled with singing and preaching. You just loved gathering with God's people, right? Let that memory drive you to work for that now. Remember, recall former days when, when you woke up on Sunday and said, I'm going to church today. Or I, I, I'm going I'm to care for, for this, this lonely person. Remember, for, the memory in the Christian life is a significant, just read through the Psalms. Right? The, the memory is a, is, a, is a useful tool in faithfulness. And that's what all they're saying. Remember. Verse 34, he continues to remind them how it once was. For you had compassion on those in prison. And in that day, when someone was in prison, for, for you to have compassion on them, you went and you cared for them. No one, you couldn't hide your compassion being shown to those in prison. You had to publicly identify with the imprisoned one. And everyone knew why they were in prison, so you were identifying with them. But even more significant, I think, he says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They weren't rich, they weren't wealthy, but they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. But notice the why. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I mean, look at the contrast between who he's writing to, who they once were, and who they were now. They'd come a long way, and he was, he, he's afraid. He's worried for them. These people were all... Uh, very hot, all in for Christ. Not lukewarm, they were all in. And they didn't want to trade him for anything. No, suffer, no suffering, no perspective suffering was going to separate them from Christ. They visited prisoners and they joyfully accepted the, the plundering of their property. Which basically means, they said, hey, you guys, you, you want to persecute us? Take all our stuff. We don't care as long as we have Jesus. Take it all. Government, come take all my stuff. Caesar, it's yours. You, you can't hurt me. Take my life. I still have Jesus. Right? That, that was their mindset. And he's saying, remember that. Because now you're falling away. You're, you're on the verge of, of forsaking Christ for a little bit of suffering. He wants them to look back. He wants them to recall their, their spiritual fervor and joy and to reclaim it for their present circumstances. But he also wants them to look ahead. To count the cost and to realize the significant cost of throwing it away now. So, so notice looking ahead, verses 35 through 38. So, so I'll read. Look at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, here's a note, two, two Old Testament quotes, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And so all of these verses, this 35, 36, 37, 38, make one point. Did you catch the, the driving point of these verses? He, he's eliminating any confusion. He's saying, if you don't finish, you don't get the reward. If you don't finish, it's as if you never started. Confident endurance is necessary all the way to the end. That's what he's saying. Finish. Look ahead. Look at all that you've done in the past. If you throw it away now, it's all gone. And you're not getting where you want to go. But, but consider what's coming if you persevere and continue until the end. He wants them to know that for them to give up now, for them to abandon Christ now, would be for them to throw away their confidence. The confidence that they clearly had in former days, the confidence that led them to endure suffering and persecution. For them to fail to persevere until the end would be for them to forfeit their reward. They would lose claim to what had been promised. 
They have to finish their race. They have to cross the line. This is going to be what the author says in, in, in chapter 11. That's why he's going to say, look at all these people that, that's, whose lives have been marked by faith and perseverance. He's going to give a whole chapter of examples. Consider Abraham. Consider Moses. Consider this person. This person. God's people have always been marked by faith. He's going to say, you need to do it. And then verse 12, or chapter 12, he's going to say, let us run with endurance the race set before us. Right? Let us run with endurance, laying aside anything that would hinder us. Let, let us finish our race. That's the goal of every Christian. That's what he wants his readers to do. That's what God would have us do to finish our race. And what a joy it is to be a pastor of a church with a lot who have, who have been running for decades. When I, look, I mean, we've buried some of them, haven't we? Some of our people, they finished their race. They've received their award. And, and some of you will probably in the next couple of years. Maybe it's me. Who knows? Right? But, but, but what a joy to see week after week saints who have, who have been walking, who are, who are so close to the finish line. And I just want to say, finish. Just finish. Just hold fast. Your reward is so close. Hold fast. He's worth it. Your reward is coming. They haven't given up. He's, he wants them to hold fast, to finish their race. And that's why he uses those two quotes from the Old Testament there in 37 and 38. It's one's from Isaiah 26, one's from Habakkuk 2. But the author says, hey, the one who has faith perseveres to the end. The one who shrinks back doesn't persevere. And, and the, the, the Lord has no pleasure in this one. And his point is, be, be the one who perseveres and doesn't shrink back, who doesn't abandon Christ, who doesn't sin deliberately. His point is that at any time the Lord's going to return and those who are faithfully persevering, those who are the ones who will receive the reward. While those who abandon the faith and neglect persevering, those who don't finish the faith will not please the Lord, but instead will face his judgment. And so his audience has come to a fork in the road. Their decision is clear. They can persevere and receive the reward or they can abandon Christ and forfeit the reward. And he's saying, don't do this. It's not worth it. Don't do it. And the author, as I said earlier, he's confident in the decision they will make, it seems. Notice verse 39. But we, himself included, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not who you are. That's not who I am. We are not of those people, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In other words, this is the pastor saying to them, I believe in you. I know who you are. You're not the faithless ones who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not you. Instead, you and me, we are those who have faith and preserve our souls. We finish the race. And then next week, he's going to continue in the on-ramp to the highway of encouragement. He's going to spend the entire chapter 11 encouraging them by defining and illustrating through biographical example after example after example what faith and persevering faith looks like. And so, Lord willing, as I said, we'll see that next week. But let me close with just two applications here. Two final points from this text. First, we must not mind a little suffering. I, mean, I think that, that we just have to recognize that. We must not mind a little suffering. If suffering were not part of the Christian life, there'd be no need for endurance and perseverance. If there weren't difficulties, there'd be no need for warnings and exhortations. But the Bible is full of them because our life is full of difficulties, trials, tribulations, sufferings. And our entire history has been filled with sufferings and public scorn and much more. God's people have always had to persevere. One great example, I won't go into detail about his life, but you can look up a, a pastor named Charles Simeon. I mean, the stories are, are uh, almost unbelievable. He's, he was a pastor. He, he came, it was a Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. He was called as a young man. He pastored there for 49 years. And early on, I mean, for decades, 
the church refused to call him their pastor. And so they did all they could to make his life miserable. Things like in those days, this is the one story, but, but in those days, um, the church would, they had pews that you could open and close. So it was, you didn't have air conditioning, so it, it kept it warm or, or cool, whatever. Well, when, when they knew that Simeon was preached, well, first of all, they'd schedule guest preachers. So he, he wouldn't even be allowed to preach at his own parish. But then they, they would lock, they'd have their service, and they said, hey, this is our church service. If you want to preach, you just have a service after we're done. But when they would leave, they, they'd lock the pews. And so he has a service, and they can't sit in pews because they're locked, because people say, we don't like you, Simeon. And so just all, and example after example, where, where they just, they, they hated him, they scorned him, and, and he just faithfully persevered. And, and at age 71, after he'd been a pastor for almost 50 years, uh, a friend asked him in a letter, well, how, how did you endure all those hardships? And, and listen to what he says, a powerful, knowing a little bit of the story. This is what he says, he says, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, this is like a, 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 a thing of bushes. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, that's Jesus, has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. And let us follow him patiently. where We shall soon be partakers of his victory. The head is through Christ has conquered. Christ has suffered and died. And so we are called like him to suffer. So we must not mind a little suffering because the way has been paved by our Messiah. He, he didn't despise suffering. He endured it. Romans 8.18, the Apostle Paul, a man who is no stranger to suffering, would say, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. That's the future glory. It's not worth comparing. The, the, the momentary afflictions are not going to be able to hold a hold a candle to the eternal weight of glory that's going to be ours when we finish. So those who, we are of those who persevere, who don't shrink back. So that's the first point. We must not mind a little suffering. The last point, we must not abandon Christ. We must not abandon Christ. Hold fast. Don't abandon him. Don't fret over losing what does not need to be held fast. So so Christ is what must be held fast. He is what we must hold fast. At the end of the day, persecution, suffering can only rob us of things that are not not required to be held fast, whether it's reputation or possessions or life itself. There's only one thing that must be held fast, and that is Christ. So don't abandon him, no matter what the cost. The, The great Martin Luther hymn, a mighty fortress, the, the last phrase, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but what? God's truth abideth still. We could change that and say, but Christ abideth still. Hold fast to Christ. Don't abandon him. Perseverance is necessary. And so here's the last word of encouragement, and then, then we're going to sing in response. But what it means to persevere is not to gauge how far we've come, but to keep clinging to Christ until the end. Just keep your eyes on on the prize. Keep your eyes on Christ and hold fast. Perseverance is necessary. Let us cling to Christ. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll sing in response.